You're tuning in to the Wild, Weird, and Sometimes Normal podcast. If you have a story or a guest recommendation that you think others need to hear, email me at wildweirdandsometimesnormal at gmail.com. Let's get this started. Alex and Brett, kick it! This episode's guest is Mike Paldino, magician and mind reader. This was a fun conversation that I had with Mike. We discussed his beginnings into magic, how he was able to grow and develop his skills. This is one of my favorite podcasts to do. It's actually one of my favorite podcasts to listen to in general, is when you tune into somebody and you think you're going to get one thing, and then the conversation just goes organically into all different areas. And that's what happened with Mike and I. We started with magic. We started with his background. We discussed classic rock, alternative rock, how kids have no idea who Kurt Cobain is and, and what a shame that is. It was really just a fun. It was back and forth. Just had a really great time. Anyway, check out the show notes for all of Mike's socials. You can connect with him through YouTube, Instagram, his website. Really great guy, great magician. Check it out. Thanks a lot. Are you looking for CBD for your pet? My friends at Pure Pet Wellness have what you need. They use the highest quality ingredients. While other companies may use synthetic oils in their CBD, Pure Pet Wellness uses organic ingredients, organically grown hemp, organic coconut oil, organic shea butter, organic beeswax, and that's just to name a few. A family-owned and operated company that also offers fast shipping. Go to purepetwellness.com for all your pet's CBD needs and use the discount code WILD and WEIRD at checkout. That's WILD, A-N-D, WEIRD. Treat your animal right. Go to purepetwellness.com. Are you looking to buy a home in New Jersey? Escape the city and move to the suburbs? Finally purchase that vacation home on the lake or down the shore? Maybe you're one of the lucky ones who are retiring and moving out of state. If so, let me help you. Keller Williams and the Real Estate Professional Group have what you need to make your goals come true. Reach out and have a conversation with someone who will put you first. Contact Brian McCoach at 856-321-1212 or email McCoach at kw.com. Welcome to another episode of Wild, Weird, and Sometimes Normal. I'm your host, Brian, and tonight our guest is Mike Paldino, magician and mind reader. Welcome, Mike. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. You're good. So magician and mind reader, not a bold title at all. Very subtle. Yeah, it's uh, it's easier than trying to hint around it. I just feel like being more direct is probably... Uh... Probably the best way for me to do it. How long have you been in the magician game, the magic game? Um, as a hobby, since I was probably seven, and then uh, professionally on and off in various degrees, um, probably since I was really out of college, like 22, 23. What got you started when you were seven years old? Typical thing, like, uh, you know, my mom's cousin, uh, say was, is, uh, I don't know if he's retired now, but he was fairly prolific, I should say, in the, uh, in, like, the New York scene back in the 70s and 80s. And uh, I was at a family party and I didn't necessarily want to be there. I was like, you know, I was a young kid. And uh, my mom was like, oh, well, my cousin does magic. He can, you know, show you a couple of tricks. And I was, I was always into magic as a kid. And I watched the Copperfield specials. And, uh, you know, I, I suffered from that delusion that you actually need to have magical powers to do magic. And so I didn't really 
didn't really explore it until that point. And then when I met him, uh, you know, he showed me my first like sleight of hand effects and, and things of that nature. And that's kind of what lit the spark as it were. All right. So you've no magical powers. This is breaking news to me. There's there yeah, anybody no, can do magic. This is <laughs> just ruined it for everybody. Yes. Anybody with enough lonely Saturday nights can pull all this off. Absolutely. I always think back to the scene in a 40 year old virgin where Steve Carell has like the rubber ear in his pocket. And then the daughter's like, do you just carry that in your pocket the whole time? And you know, he has like the ashamed look of, you know, that's what he does. So you're more of a, would, yeah. would you say like a street magician, Like you're not, you don't have a bag of tricks or anything that you're, you're carrying around. You're not making, um, can you make rabbits disappear? A couple of times I've seen you, you weren't doing that. No, I, I, you know, how, how you've seen me work in the past, like in those scenarios with um, in more social gathering situations. Um, that's how I prefer to work. Uh, I don't walk into a, uh, like a private performance or uh, something like that with a, with a bag and I kind of just work out of my pockets. So whatever I, and, and really even then it, it's very minimal. It's, you know, it's a couple decks of cards, a Sharpie. Sometimes if I need to get people's attention, some needles, uh, but for the most part, you know, it's uh, and there's a couple slips of paper too. Um, but that's pretty much it. You know, when I have a, a stage show or I'm doing this with my, my stand up show, um, that tends to be a little more involved. And even then, it's it's not really prop heavy, it's more, I guess, like scenery heavy, I guess you could say. Um, but I try to keep things as minimal as possible because, like, philosophically speaking, for me, like, I don't, I don't want, I don't want to give the impression to people that what I do comes from the need to like have something physical in my hand. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, definitely. So, so like I tell people, like when I, like when I used to work, I, I worked for many years in restaurants, uh, like just, you know, on all sides of it, like serving, bartending, and then just, you know, doing magic too. And I learned over the years how to improvise in those situations. So, I mean, I could walk into a restaurant with nothing really necessarily on me and do like 40 minutes just on the table, you know, the silverware and the, the salt and pepper shakers and things like that. Um, and I, I tend to think like that, that's kind of like how I prefer to do magic because again, you're taking things that are more organic in the scenario or in, the, in that given situation and doing something with it as opposed to, okay, um, like here's this magic trick, but I gotta, I gotta reach my pocket and grab a handful of something to come out and do that. Does that make sense? You feel it might take the authenticity away a little bit if you're digging around and, and give the option for somebody to disbelieve or to question? Not necessarily. Uh, you know, it's, it's, again, it's, it's, an, and if I go too long here, then you can stop me. But uh, like philosophically speaking for me, right. Um, and I have I had this conversation, or if you want to call it an argument with people many times, for me, like, I, I got rather, and not to say that I don't, like if someone asks me to see something and I'll go and grab a deck of cards in my pocket, but my, my preference is to maybe like pick a fork up off the table first and like, you know, rub it and it bends or something like that. And then I can go into my pocket because now my credibility is established with that person. Whereas um, if I'm just all of a sudden reaching for stuff in my pockets, people, this, this, the suspicion comes out a little bit faster. And, people. and uh, not to say that one is more like better or more beneficial than the other. It's, it's just a, it's just an approach, I guess you could say. So you want to establish the, I mean, your credibility and then yeah, like build the trust model, with, the, with the, the person performing the trick on who then allows you a certain type of freedom to then to move on to whatever the next trick might develop into, as opposed yes. to this bent spoon was already in my pocket and due to sleight of hand, I'm now showing you something that was already pre-bent. Is that kind of... Yeah, yeah absolutely. So like I feel like... Um... It kind of takes the heat off. If, like, let's say I bring a, a coin or something out of my pocket. If I were to do that first, we're establishing um, here's this quarter, or we're going to do a magic trick with this quarter, as opposed to say, here, you give me a quarter first, and I'll do something with that quarter. And then when I reach into my pocket and pull something out, it becomes like vicious, but it just becomes more authentic of a moment okay. because they already know that I can do something with something that didn't come out of my pocket. 
you should try reaching into their pocket first and see how that goes. I've done that. Yeah, I used to, <laughs> I used to, I used to watches and things a lot. So that always uh, that, that's always an option. A- any way to pay the bills. I like it. I, I do like uh, the street magic. I keep referring. I, I, that's probably a wrong term that I just made up. No. Uh, yeah, I feel like Comedy Central used to, God, maybe it was Comedy Central, used to show more magic specials or they'd have, you know, the little half hour. It wasn't always the David Blaine three hour thing. They would have the guy stealing used watches to, and belts. Show, like, and the Amazing Johnson special. Amazing Jonathan yeah. was the best. The, the, the yeah. comedy. Yeah. He's, yeah, he, there would probably be no, no me or no part of me anyway without him. I mean, I grew up worshiping him. I actually, I have, in, I'll show you some other time. Uh, I have in my office back there um, one of his old, like, actual stage use props. Um, the, the one time I crossed paths with him, with him and, uh, I was just one of those I happened to mention and we sat and talked for a while and he came back with it. He goes, here you go, take it. And I was like, oh, okay. Uh, and now, so now it kind of just sits in my collection of rarities back there because they're hard to come by and there ain't any more coming. So, you know, God, God rest his soul. But yeah, I, you know, I was getting back to what you said about like street magic, the street magic and like how it's, how it's, um, like that term, how it's defined now versus how how it used to be like when I was in college, I was doing a lot of shows on the boardwalk and things like that. Or I was a kid, I'd go into New York and onto Washington, into Washington Square Park and, you know, see guys out there busting. Um, that's traditionally what street magic was. And now it's because of the connotation that that first Blaine special put out there with that being the title of it. Now it's like everybody refers to anybody doing magic tricks outside of a formal situation as street magic. So, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm a street magician, but I, mean, I, do, I do magic everywhere I go. So it's, I don't really try to, I don't peg I don't peg it into one specific category because like people are always like oh where do you do your shows and like well because I'm not, I'm never off the clock the show is pretty much everywhere I go you're never off the clock does is your family ever you know kind of give you the eye roll of like oh are you doing you know again again can you please just put the salt shaker back on the table like well, hey, I, mean, you know, I don't I don't force it on people I just say like when I'm by saying I'm never off the clock like I know people in the business um, who like they will flat out to tell you I will not do magic unless I'm being paid to do it. And that's their prerogative. That's fine. And, and again, I don't like forcing it on people myself and being like, here, look at this while I, you know, because I feel like a lot of magicians now feel like they have license just to walk up to people on the street. But here, look, I'm just a magic trick because uh, they saw it on TV. Like I, I try to respect people's boundaries a little bit. But like if I'm somewhere where people know me and it comes out or I feel more comfortable doing it, like I'll do something, I'll stay online at Starbucks and I'll, I'll do something, you know, quick and visual just to kind of entertain myself. But I mean, like getting back to my point about more like, I, like I look at it like this, right? The person that I am in the morning when I wake up is the same person I am all day and when I go to sleep at night, right? So if I if I'm a magician during the day, then I'm also one at night when I'm being paid or in the morning when I'm going out for coffee. Like that, that's what I'm saying. So like if if like uh, I don't I don't think that I would be able to say I'm a magician if the thing that magically makes me work is a paycheck, right? It may sound snooty, but I see those two things as different. Like and again, I, I no disrespect to people who who want to live that way. Like if you don't want to do stuff because you're not getting paid to do it, that's fine. But but if I'm trying to sell you uh, an idea that I'm magic or I do magic or I, then there's no, uh, it gets back to my point about reaching into the pockets. That part of me never turns off. Right. And it's different. Cause like if I were, if I were a plumber and I wouldn't be walking around, you know, snaking drains all day, or if I was a football player, I'd be out catching footballs in the street all day. But my profession is one where there's certain expectations set sometimes like societally speaking, and sometimes there's just um, I say expectations again, but they, yeah, there are. So people already come with that assumption that you're just going to be able to do stuff whenever you want to. So it's like, now granted, again, um, I, I try to do things on demand as quickly as people are like, oh, show me something. It's like, I kind of have to be in that mode or have to get into that mode. But if I leave the house on a night and I'm in that mode, then it's, you know, it's uh, it's game on for me. 
because it's not like sometimes I'll tell you, like I sometimes I go out and I just want to be left alone. And then sometimes I go out and I kind of contrive situations. Like if I'm workshopping some new material or something I want to try, I'll contrive situations to put myself in to casually, quote unquote, like, oh, hey, let me show you this one thing real quick, just because I want to see how, how it looks. Oh, I think that's that's interesting. You know, like comedians have open mic night or magicians or you go to the coffee house and they can tinker on a new song or, or do it, whatever they, their craft, they can work on their craft. You know, there's only so much you can do at a desk in front of a mirror until you're ready to show it to the world. But then also, where are you taking that trick that still might need a little tweaking or you want to see how a reaction is or what beat do you want to play? into yeah. the big reveal or whatever it might be. You know, so, you know, contriving the situation, that's almost like your little coffee house that you're going to to work on your new trick. Yeah. And if I, you know, I'm at that things where I've had material that I've worked on for, you know, weeks and months and sometimes years and just try to get the most out of it. And then you bring it out into the world and it just falls flat or people don't get it. Like I had one piece of my show in particular that I was really excited about. And I had this, this visual thing in my head for so long. And I finally put it together. I'm like, this is going to be great. And then I performed it and people were just, had, after the show, they were like, I think it was great. But that one thing was like, we didn't know what that, what that was about. And, it, and the clarity wasn't there. So really, you know, you can practice these things through, you know, so you're blue in the face, but until you put it in front of people to take apart and, and, and see, you really don't know how it's going to go. Sometimes, you know, I have expectations for things that I think are going to land really, really high on the mark. And end up falling flat, and then I have these little like throwaway things that end up going into my my daily repertoire because I just underestimated the the power of it. Let's say from like a magician's perspective, it's easy to get jaded at these kind of things. You know, you're just like, Ugh. but you forget because like certain things that we see every day, the lay public doesn't see every day. We take it for granted, but these things go over really well with lay people, and uh, and sometimes like magicians will frown on certain things but then you have to kind of remind yourself like you frown on things because we see this all the time and we see it done improperly or we see it done really great so it becomes a thing of people either doing it poorly or seeing it done really well and then trying to take that presentation or take that that execution of it and kind of make it their own and that's that's like an ethical thing that i won't get into but it's like it's it's two it's two sides of the same weird kind of rusty little coin that makes any sense Oh no, definitely does. And that uh, I know I keep going back to comedy on this, but you saying that of uh, you know the other magicians, you know, might frown on or, or jaded. That kind of reminds me of. Uh, you ever see the, the documentary movie The Aristocrats? And it was oh, the I've comedians all telling right. So, but like that was the joke for the comedians to to try to outdo each other. That you couldn't say it in public at that time because people would yeah. be horrified that Bob Saget cursed or you know Gilbert Godfrey's making you know a nine eleven joke or whatever he was doing. What intrigued you at seven years old, you know, that might have taken someone else a lot longer to get bit by that bug of like, wow, that's really interesting, or to then take it to a profession, you know, more than a hobby or an interest, you know, but even just as what you would consider a simple card trick, like blows my mind. And I'm like, like this is crazy. Like, how did that, how that four parts that was burned in a fire come back instantly? And it's in my pocket in, in the middle of my wallet, like something like that. To other magicians, that that might be like, oh my god, he's he's doing that trick again. But the public is like that, like yes, give me that trick again. That's what I want to see. Oh yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot, you know. I said this, there's not really. I was just a joke. There's not really anything new in magic. It's like the same five tricks, just kind of rehashed over. I mean, this one goes out there doing some really insane things, and and that just knocks me for a loop because it's like ah, I'm not doing anything like that. You know, I keep it as simple as possible for myself anyway. And just because again, philosophically speaking, you know, if I get up there, I'm starting to do all these fancy. Like I can do a lot of these fancy cuts and shuffles, but like when I when I'm working, I try not to do that because it completely is the antithesis of, of like my persona that I work under is that, you know, like a, like everything I do is very simple. Like if, you know, if you psychologically speaking, if you, know, if you put the card in the center of the deck and then I start shuffling things around, psychologically speaking, even if you're not thinking of it in the back of your head somewhere, you get that little kind of thing bugging you where it's like, well, you know, when he shuffled the cards, maybe he brought the card where he needed it to go. 
So when I put it in the center, I, I put it in and there's no shuffles, there's no cuts, it goes in, it stays in, and then from there. Now from there, it's, you know, like I tell everybody, it's like the old adage of watching a duck go across a pond, right? So it looks really peaceful on top, but underneath there's a lot of work happening, right? So when I'm working for somebody, everything looks calm and peaceful, but there's a lot of stuff going on that you don't see that I have to make happen to make it look as clean as possible for you and not take that moment away from you. Right, that makes sense. I doubt most people think that you know for this card trick, it just magically appears. There has to be something that you're doing that the average person is not picking up on because you need that sleight of hand. And you know, I think the duck is a good way of doing it. You're looking like you're not doing anything while there is a lot going on. And to a trained eye, they're like, "Oh yeah, I see Mike. Look at look at Mike working. Look at him doing step one of eight or whatever." And the regular people are just eyes open, mouth open, staring at you like, "Uh, like how do you do that?" But you know, it comes in different forms too, because if it's not something that's terribly um, skill-based or you know dexterous with the fingers, there's other forms of that. So like if I'm delivering the script that I wrote in terms of a piece, like I have I have a couple things in my show that it's like 90% talking and there's very little going on, but it's kind of like the effect is kind of there to like, so when I, when I write pieces for my show, right, I kind of think of the, the story that I want to tell and then I find the material to kind of supplement that. Like there's this one thing I've been working on for a couple of years now. It's still not not quite where I want it to be, but it's just a very simple, like it looks like a very simple card trick in, in terms of what's happening. But every motion is choreographed to an audio recording that's playing over what I'm doing. So it's, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily technically difficult for me to perform, but it's it's a timing thing. Like if I miss that one little beat, the whole thing will kind of fall apart. You know, it, it, sometimes I always say like there's no magic trick that's really easy, but there, I mean, there, there are tricks that are fairly simple to do. The things that go overlooked, let's say, in performance is the actual performance, right? And I've done this too. I've been on stage sort of like stumbling through my words and forgetting where I was in my script. And I, I try to actually not go 100% on script. I try to like kind of see where I want to go and then hit those points. And sometimes that hurts me. Um, so I've kind of tried to become more diligent in the last you know 10 or so years of kind of really sticking to what I'm writing. Do you feel that that could hurt a future performance? Like, oh, I've already seen this. I've heard him say this exact same phrase. And then I, then he does this trick. Like there was a, there was this comedian on Comedy Central, Stephen Lynch, who would do music. And he was a, a funny guy, played songs. I saw him in concert a couple of times. You know, you'd see his special and you're like, oh, this is great. And then he would come and play in Atlantic City. And as he's playing, he is doing the exact same beats, the exact same bit, the exact same, you know, the random guy from the audience who came down actually is his brother. And it's not a random guy from the audience. And the exact same conversation he had on Comedy Central, he's having right in front of you. And it kind of takes away the uniqueness of seeing somebody. No, I agree. I mean, I, just, I, I know Lynch actually very well for years. Uh, I, used to, I used to see him in New York all the time. Um, and then, in, you know, in Jersey and various places. Um Part of me is like, let's, you know, that's part of the show. Like that part is actually a written part of the show. It's not a spontaneous thing for me. So there's, okay. So there's pieces in the show that are um, written from start to finish. Right. And those tend to be the more static things on stage. Like if I'm standing there doing something like there's one bit of my, in my show where I take a card and I, I tear it into four pieces and then stick it back together piece by piece. And there's a script that goes, there's dialogue that goes along with that. That trick is the same every night because it's just me working with it. Whereas if I'm giving the introduction to a piece, let's say, and then there's people being involved, that people that are involved in that piece from the audience, um, the script kind of ends when I start pulling people up, because then from there, you can't really script that because uh, you don't know who you're bringing up. You don't know what their reactions are going to be. You can't really gauge. So that's kind of where the improv portion of the show comes in. Um, so the, the whole show is not scripted from start to finish. It's not like a play where it's 100% on script. 
the presentations, the, the, the stories or the angles that I'm trying to tell, those things tend to be scripted. But, you know, if, if I've had, I've had people get on stage and start screaming or start trying to, like, make the show their own, and they kind of kind of work off of that and kind of work off the energy in that scenario. But no, I don't think it takes you anyway. I see what your point is. I mean, I remember seeing um, uh, Marilyn Manson back in, like, the 90s. And we saw him. I was When I was working in radio, and we saw him. It was, like, a three-night thing in uh, two shows in New York and then one in New Jersey. And it was the same set list three nights in a row. And he said the same things between the same songs, all three. And that to me was kind of like, eh. and that took it out of it for me. Cause I, you know, I don't know why, but then years later I thought about it and I was like, well, it's, you know, in thinking about his show as a, or their show as a whole piece, it's kind of like your thing before with Lynch where that, that whole thing is, is one complete show just broken up by different songs. So I've kind of, I kind of see the, where that is, but like, I'm just, I was at the time, I was just, just going to rock concerts where between songs, you just used to, you know, how it is, you get there and the singer starts talking to the crowd and riffing off people in the audience. So for me to see someone between songs just saying the same nonsense, I was kind of turned off for that, by that for a while. But no, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of room in my show when I'm on stage. There's a lot of room for improvisation and just talking to the audience because the, sh- the shows i do it's not like i'm doing a show for four thousand people it's like you know i'll do like a small rock club or something like 120 people so like at, at that level like i can look out in the audience i don't see a big mob of pe- like you know a big sea of people there's literally individual faces i can actually sit and have a conversation with um and the second part of the show i specifically do that with many people in the audience so it kind of i think that closeness kind of creates uh, a good camaraderie there because it's, it's less about me and more about the group experience which is what i try to do anyway i'm not i'm not there like doing flashy stuff to make myself look better like i try to take the the energy off of me and put it on the people more so i think that's like that's what people go home remembering you know, i've had people this one piece of my show where i've had like three people cry on stage and it's not planned it just it happens to hit people in a certain way that even i couldn't the first time i did it i, I couldn't even imagine happening but it just it was one of those things and people they cry and then they thank me for it and it's like this amazing experience but you know those kind of things can't be scripted you just ha- kind of have to it happens in the moment you gotta you gotta go with it and deal with it and be sensitive to people and still not have people leaving feeling bad it's an interesting it's an interesting way to kind of approach i think what i do because it's not i don't think the show i do is necessarily typical of many magic shows out there i don't really see that my show is like a magic show it's like but if i could if i my, in my dream world if i could do like an hour of just talking and do one card trick right in the middle of there or something and have that be the whole show that'd be fine for me but you know unfortunately i kind of like need the security of these things to, to kind of get me through well, you mix it in you grow and develop then you have your own mega podcast and then after this takes off on spotify i can come on as a guest and you know we'll see how that goes oh i would never have the patience for it i, I, I admire <laughs> you for doing this and, you know, especially like a video thing, because the people that will see this can't see, but there's a massive, massive mess behind me here. This isn't your palatial estate you're talking about, though. I think I just saw a tiger walk by behind you. This is my, this is my summer home. <laughs> uh, he's summer that's, here. That's the butler. I think he just ate my kid or something. I don't know. <laughs> so going back Maybe. to uh, reactions, you said you, you've had people come on stage and they have just gone from like zero to 100 in energy. They are trying, maybe not trying to take over the show, but they are experiencing it to the the most that they can. This is Bob Barker has told you to come on down. You were going to get yeah. to spin the wheel and you are freaking out. What is the craziest experience that you've had? A positive one with an audience member who's come on. Oh, good Lord. I don't know. Uh, that's tough. I mean, I had a lot of great experience and it really is. It's kind of, there's always something, you know, you know, people, people tend to scream a lot. Or, I mean, I think, you know, the first person that came up and was, you know, and uh, started crying was like, I wouldn't say it was the most fun I've ever had, but again, it was the most, like shocking moment for me 
because uh, what ended up happening was um, I, I'll give you the long and the short of it. Just basically like just that someone had come up at the end of the show and at the end of this whole this whole bit, and I'd had this letter on stage. It's been it's been sitting there the entire show, and, uh, and she had been picked at random. Somebody else picked her name out of a hat, and she came up, and we just had a conversation. And I said to her, you know, you can open the letter, but you know, you have to kind of take what it says at face value. And you can't. And the other rule is you can't tell anybody what it says. Like this is the audience. You're going to want to know what it says. She can't tell you. You can't tell your boyfriend. You can't tell anybody. And uh, she says, "Okay." And I want to just. It's like Friday night. We're just you know whatever. So the place is like really quiet. She starts opening the letter up, and she's like reading, reading, and she's like, giggling here and there. And then she gets, and then she gets to a certain point, and she gasps. And I was like, "All right, I think I know where she's reading now." And then a couple of seconds later, and all of a sudden, that's when the tears came. And then she just like jumped and hugged me, and the whole place went nuts. The people in the audience were crying and clapping, and it was and it was great. Because again, it's like for me, like I do the, sh- I try to do the show that I want to go see. So if I go to a show and it's, if I go to see like a, a magician and it's just card trick, card trick, card trick, card trick, and there's nothing, there's no emotion in it for me. There's nothing behind it. I'm like, yes, I can, I can admire, I can admire skills. And I've seen plenty of shows like that, but I want to, I want to see a show that it's like watching a movie for me. I want to see something that moves me emotionally, that has me up thinking at night. So I, just, I try to do that. I try to create the stuff that I just want, I would want to see as an audience member. So when something like that happens and it's completely unplanned, it's completely unexpected, that's like the reward for me because I feel like, all right, you know, I'm, I'm doing something. Say I'm doing something right, but I'm, I'm doing something that's affecting somebody, you know, who just came to, I'm going to come see this guy do card tricks, you know, and, and or, or whatever it was that night. And it ends up becoming a whole different thing. I think um, you're always going to find success if you are positioning yourself to put on a show that you personally want to see or want to enjoy. That if you were just a grinder up there, just doing trick after trick and just a machine went through a hundred tricks in an hour and people are like, wow, that was really great. But then you leave and you're like, maybe one or two or 10 tricks stand out. But as you make a connection with somebody through the conversation, through the stories, through the interactions, I think you're building more of a loyalty there. I think you're building you know, people wanting to come back and then also somewhere you know, self-fulfilling for what you enjoy. I mean, a friend of mine once told me, I, I, I did like a magician's thing last year, which I don't, know, I don't normally do, but I, it was a, a magic convention and I performed at it. And I was, I was asked by a guy who's a good friend of mine now, but growing up, he was like a, a superstar. Like I you know, bought his books and I bought his tricks. And, and so when he asked me to do this, I, I couldn't say no. And it did the show and I was moderately happy, but after having sat at home for two and a half years, you know, not doing anything in front of audiences, it was, it was, it was a lot emotionally for me to kind of take in. But afterwards, I was kind of just sitting there kicking myself like, oh, I should have done it like this or I should not. And uh, I was really worried that people just weren't into it. And I was trying to get feedback from people. And they're like, no, nah, everyone really enjoyed it and really thought it was cool. And someone actually told me, like, look, you do artistic things. You're not like you're, you're not commercial. You're artistic. And, and that's what sets you apart and or at least sets me into a different category, which I, which I guess is complimentary in some way. You know, if, if I was 25, I, I suppose I'd be, I, I guess I'd be more kind of driven to, like when someone says, oh, you should go on, like, you know, America's Got Talent, one of those things, like that doesn't really appeal to me. But if, if I was still in my 20s, maybe, but now it's like a point where I kind of, I think like self-respect and like belief in what I'm doing in, in myself is more important, you know? How are you going to bump up now? your Instagram followers? How are you going to get more people on all the socials to keep following you if you're not on, you know, Love is Blind and you're not on America's Got Talent? You You need to go on these shows. This is what America has told me for success. Yeah, of course. That's why everywhere I go, I'm always tossing in a business card, like, you know, writing my handle on someone's arm or something like now you must follow me. Yeah. I'll just tell people, like, you got to follow me or I'll shoot myself. So no pressure. Um, <laughs> Good way yeah. to get followers. Yeah. But I think the good thing about me is, is like, again, like when people come see what I come see me on, you know, on the occasion that I am doing a show somewhere, 
there's people that come in knowing nothing. And then there's people that say, know exactly what they're going to get. People know they're going to get something strange and different. And that's why people come back repeatedly because they know that it's not just going to be me pulling it right out the hat or cutting up a piece of rope and sticking it back together, you know? And then that's, I think that's the rewarding thing for me. Oh, I have been thinking lately. I just want to do a show like that. Like it's just really traditional magic and really just, I think that would be the most messed up thing for me to do with people who know me. I think that'd be funny. You put on the, the big oversized suit, you know, like a little bigger yeah. of a tie, like bring back the eighties and, and just kind of go and do that. Yeah. I actually, for that show that I did last year, I actually started working, you know, the, you know, the linking rings, the big, the big Chinese linking rings the, where they link together right. for years. That, I mean, I always say like this is the worst trick in magic. And I, and, I, and in a way, I kind of still believe that. And uh, a couple of years ago, I was just kind of fussing around and I was thinking about it. I'm like, I said to my friend, I go, what about this presentation for the Linking Rings? I told him this whole idea that I had about how it would just be about me and how how awful the trick is and me just doing the trick and be like, this is the stupidest trick. And trying, and kind of like as the, the piece progresses, it becomes clear that like, so it's kind of like making the, the rings into the hero and makes me look like a jerk. Because every time I say this thing is so terrible, I do something pretty cool with them. And then by the end, there's like this transformed thing that happens where like I end up kind of having like a certain amount of reverence for them. And then there's a punchline at the end. But but it's kind of this thing. And, and if for the whole longest time, it was this tongue-in-cheek thing where it's like, I'm just going to get there and, and learn how to do the linking rings so that I can get on stage and trash them and tell them how awful they are. And in some weird way, as I was learning to do them, I grew to, to like really love them. And it became like a really, I was really excited to do it. And the first time I tried to do it on stage, I had, I was at a show and a bunch of my friends were there in the back. And the second I brought them out, like the entire back wall, it was all magicians. And they all started laughing at me because they knew they weren't laughing at me per se. They were, it was kind of like, what are you doing with those? You know, like it was this completely unexpected thing. And I think that's kind of good because again, it shows that I at least can find ways to still keep it somewhat fresh. And it was a good challenge for me because again, like I, that was nothing I was ever into as a kid doing that trick necessarily or specifically. You know, like people who have seen me do it since then who were, I mean, I have friends who do the rings who are masters at it. And sometimes I feel bad performing it the way I perform it in front of them because they're just so good and so beautiful at it. Um, and I've gotten some good feedback on them too, but that, that's one of those special occasion comics. That's not something like I'm not, I'm not walking around the street being like, hey guys, look at these. I know people who do that. That's no, never, no, that's not me at all. Question just popped in my head. So is being a magician full-time job? Yes. Do you, yeah. Okay. During COVID, how difficult was that? Is, are you doing Zoom shows? No, uh, I did one or two of the Zoom shows, but I was, I lost probably like six or eight months of work overnight cancellation to cancellation, which obviously, because nobody just nobody knew what was going on. And I have friends who were much worse off than I was. I mean, it wasn't, you know, I, I mean, it, everyone's at their own thing, but I'm mad at people who made it much worse than I than I got it. I didn't, I, the Zoom show thing appealed to me at first, like very briefly. I was like, all right, well, this is something we can do. And then all of a sudden, everyone started doing them. And then people started talking, like, what if this is the new normal? What if live theater is dead? And I, and I refused to, I refused categorically to admit that, that was ever going to happen. So I think that like mentally kind of put me into a space where I fought against doing zoom shows because i kind of felt like but if this is the if this is the only alternative i don't really i didn't want to admit that to myself and so i didn't do a lot like i, I worked on stuff and then i just kind of had it i burned out probably like eight or nine months into the, the whole experience and just kind of put everything away for a while and just didn't touch it for a while and it, i was just really kind of frustrated i kind of i kind of needed to come back to it naturally and i think that that helped out because sometimes like especially with this you just it, when, when you do get creative burnout like I was through periods in my life where I would burn out and just walk away from magic for like six, eight, 10 months, you know, um, and I didn't want to do that this time. I just think like seeing everybody out there and, and seeing people do really great shows. There was my friends, a couple of my friends, did some really great Zoom shows and they were equipped to do that. And I just, I, I don't, I wasn't, and it wasn't about to take too many steps to, um, to catch up to them at that point, I guess. Cause I was like, people are doing it better. I'm just going to leave it to them.
And then I think by that July or August, I think people were crawling back to start having live events again. So good then. And you know, thankfully it turned out that way. Yeah. But definitely missed the live events all during COVID. The, the one thing that I did like that came out of it was uh, even some really big artists were doing Instagram live shows and for, you know, relatively cheap and they would just play acoustically and whatever it might be, or, you know, just mess around on their guitar. You know, I saw the band 311 that they advertised this. I think it was September of last year. I was away for it though, but they were doing four different shows. Uh, one was the the Blue Album that you know, came out in the 90s. That was you know, maybe their most popular or whatever. And they were playing in Chicago, but they were going to live stream it for 20 bucks. It's like, all right, at what point is there like Springsteen? He, he can't sell out Wachovia any more than already. Citizen Bank Park is sold out. There's not one more seat going. But at what point is there this break even where he can then stream a show to get the people? You know, there has to be like a revenue increase for him that he's going to get from that, but then also expand his shows to more people. I think more bands should do that is the point of that. Yeah, I think it's good too. Uh, in a sense, uh, you know, those kind of those live stream shows for a while were kind of killing. I used to go to a lot of concerts and then for a while it was kind of like, well, what's the point of leaving now? Because now it's like twice as difficult between trying to get tickets online, all the bots eating them all up and you're just trying to fight for a, you know, a $50 ticket to go to some ratty club. And it's, it's like, Ugh. you know, like I'd rather just watch some cell phone video on, on YouTube at some point because it's just the hassle of it. But I, I love going to live shows and I, I love live theater and I try, not to be, I try not to become too jaded about it because uh, I like to see people up close and see the bands I like. And uh, although I just watched a really good one the other night, this band, I'm really into this band Spotlights. I discovered then they were opening up for Deftones a couple of years ago. And now uh, they put records out on uh, Mike Patton's label from Mike Patton from Faith No More. If you're familiar, it's like, like that's okay. Band. Yeah. Yep. And uh, so they put some, I just got some new coming out, but uh, they put this EP out during the, the lockdowns, like four tracks. And I just found a thing on YouTube last week that was um, like a live performance of the entire EP straight through. Oh, God, they're just. They rock me. I love them. That's awesome. Yeah. Streaming in the background or a, a concert's great. Uh, if you can go to one live, it is always it is always better. I think everybody knows that. Uh, but then as you start having kids and you're like, oh, I have to the babysitter and that's 100 bucks for the night. The tickets were 150 bucks. I have to now get an Uber and that's 150. And you're like, Jesus, I just spent a vacation to go see, go to some yeah. small club and see a band. Uh, yeah, sometimes it's, it's worth it. Other times you're like, oh, I can't do this every month. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm in college. Uh, when I was in college radio, I mean, we, you know, we're going to these shows, you know, the old Birch Hill in Jersey and Irving Plaza in New York, you know, $20, $30. Sometimes we were going to some, you know, dingbats in Clifton, seeing a, a show for five bucks, you know, it's great. And now it's like 300 bucks to see some band I like at a bar in Brooklyn. It's, yeah, that. it's between the money and the travel and just the mental hassle of it. Uh, you know, it's tough because I love seeing live shows, but the, the effort sometimes is just overweighed by the, uh, the desire to stay home, I guess, or outweighed. <laughs> One of those ways you have to uh, find the balance. I just, I just got an old is the problem. I'm boring that. <laughs> I hear you. I'm like, oh, it's nine thirty now. I'm ready for bed. I know, so right? Like, like my, my friends, like, I have some friends, like, they're still in their thirties, and they'll call and they'll be like, oh, let's go out. We're gonna meet up around eleven. I was like, eh, nah, it's not happening. There's there's days I wouldn't leave my house until eleven, eleven thirty at night, and now I'm like, is it nine fifteen already? Ooh, I don't know. So I was telling like, if you don't call me by eight thirty to make sure that I'm off my couch and out of my house. I will not be there at 11 o'clock. I just, I just not, not going to be there. That's fine. I'm okay there's, with it. There's shows to catch up on Netflix. There's HBO. You got to see what they're doing with The Last of Us. Yeah. You know, the zombie's going to get them. There's a lot going on. Yeah. Like, I, used to, I used to think I used to think I was quite the night out. I would be up all night. And I, was, I always used to think that subconsciously, I just was afraid I was going to miss something if it happened. And now I'm kind of at the point where I'm like, look, if my couch is on fire and I'm asleep on it, it was meant to be. Like, if I don't wake up, I don't know what to tell you. Like, what a way to go. That's fine. <laughs> I was napping on the couch and that was it. Uh, all right, let's swing back. Seven years old, you start getting the, the magic bug. What are some of the uh, the first tricks that you're doing? Yeah, the first trick that my mom's cousin showed me that 
which is the one that kind of like lit the spark, I guess you could say. Um, he just, you know, he had a little piece of silk and he vanished it into his hand and it just blew my and he, you know, and he reproduced it and it just kind of blew my mind. And then at the end of the day, he gave that to me and he showed me how it works. He's like, you know, go home and practice. And then when I see you again, see some improvement. So I'd go and I'd, you know, I'd walk around with it and have it in my pocket and not really do it for anything. And then uh, I was out with my uh, my mom and some of her friends one day where I was like the only kid there. We're sitting in this pizza place in the mall. It was like one of those circular booths where everyone kind of sits around the table. I was sitting dead center of it and not talking about doing anything. And for whatever reason, I just stood up on the booth and I was like, magic trick. And I did it and they applauded. And then that was that was kind of it for me. And then from there, it was, you know, like the self-working tricks. And then I all of a sudden discovered books. So it was self-working card tricks. And then I discovered more like advanced sleight of hand technique and started kind of getting into that and kind of maneuvering. And then, you know, throughout the years, you know, like taste changed here and there. And then I went through a phase in college where I was like kind of being like more wacky and goofy, I guess you could say. And I had like a personal thing in my life where like a health situation that kind of redefined, I guess, you know, where I wanted to go in a performance arena. But for mostly it's the through line through all of it's always been cards. So I was like walked around through my pocket. And At what this. point did you realize that magic could, that magic could also be a career? I think it was just, you know, it was, it was circumstantial because like, I, you know, I got out of high school, I went to college and I, I did that whole thing. I went to, you know, did the, did the five-year plan in college and, you know, went to a really good school in Jersey, uh, which is where, you know, where I grew up. You know, like when I got out of college, my, you know, my career path at that point was, you know, like with the big boy job, I guess you could say was, it was radio. And uh, so I was on radio for five years while I was in college and then got out and started kind of that, that into the career. And it petered out very quickly and I wasn't happy where I was. And I, I was, you know, I was waiting tables in the side bartending and, and running back and forth to New York city, doing these odd things for radio stations and trying to kind of get my foot in the door and, uh, and opportunities just kind of kept passing by me or just kept missing them. And I was getting very frustrated. So I was like, you know what, I'm just going to take a year and I'm going to bartend and I'll, I'll do some magic stuff on the side and I'll figure out, I'll figure, I'll figure life out. And this time next year, we'll see where we're at. So, you know, I started doing that. And then after the year, I look at my, you know, my income stuff and, you know, what I was making bartending, what I was making doing magic were like kind of almost on par. So I was like, right, maybe I'll, I'll give myself another year and we'll see. And you know, I kind of build more of a nest egg and then I'll kind of, and that just kind of kept happening. So like one year became two and two became five and all of a sudden 10 years had passed and I was just doing, you know, doing magic and then bartending or, you know, for a short time, I was, I was like running a movie theater at some point for a couple of 30 years or so. Uh, just again, just for money and just for income things. And then it kind of just happened by accident. And then, you know, when uh, when my kids were born, it kind of allowed me more time to be home and kind of work on the business aspect of it. So I'm not that there was ever a time when I kind of really sat back and said, okay, I can do this. It just kind of happened. I think there's, if I had more of a business sense about it, maybe I, or, or less, uh, less obligation to what I thought I was supposed to do. You know, I say like, you know, I might not have even bothered going to college. I might've just gone right out into the workforce or maybe, or maybe just gone to like a business school for two years and, and figured that side of it out. But I, w- I was just kind of like trying to do at the time what I thought I was supposed to be doing uh, in terms of you go to high school, what's next? You go to college, then we do, you get a job. And, uh, and, and that, that path was never really one that I wanted to follow anyway. Like I knew from a young age, I didn't, want to be in an office anywhere and I kind of wanted to be out and seeing the world. And, you know, it just took, it just, uh, instead of like a direct line, it kind of took some, some weird twists and turns to get there, but I got there and that's fine. I think it's, you know, it's, it's, I'm sure most people would say like, you know, it's what's meant to be is meant to be as long, you know, it doesn't matter when you get there, as long as you get there. As long as you get there, as long as you're taking steps forward, but then also, you know, you're, you're bartending and that's typical of most people within our age range as you have either worked as a server or a bartender and they never had a passion that they followed. It was, okay, I work three, four five nights a week. There's industry night that I go to on Sundays and then I'm going to go see my other buddies at the other bar and drink for free or, you know, get a meal for free. 
and never do anything else in between except stay up till five o'clock in the morning and then sleep till right before your shift. Yeah. So for you to sit here and go, okay, well, you know, what else is there? I, you know, I think that's pretty good. And, and look what you turned it into. So I, yeah, I, you know, I always say that. And like, you know, all my jobs up until I was waiting tables or whatever, um, had all been in retail. So I was like, I'm, I'll last maybe two weeks in this job. And I just took to it. And that was the sad thing was that I kind of got stuck in it for a while, like in, in the restaurant industry, because because I was which is good at it. Like I was, I'm personable and I was able to bring business in or, you know, build up a client or a client, so build up like a list of regulars. Like I'm the one, one of the places I worked, it was like an, almost a joke, but you know, on there's certain nights of the week that my section had its own wait list separate from the rest of the restaurant because I just had that many people happen to be coming in, which is nice. Working in the restaurant is not a job, it's a lifestyle choice, right? So there were a lot of nights like that where we close the restaurant down, we'd go to the pub next door after the after hours, we drink, the sun would be coming up the next morning, I'd go back to my apartment, shower, and back to work. And I didn't want to be doing that necessarily. There's people who have no problem with this, like the lifers who they're still doing it now. And it's like, that's great. But I just, I had kind of like restaurant work for me was a means to an end, not the end. Once I'd kind of gotten what I could out of that and kind of say burned out, but burned out and just didn't want to do it anymore. And just working on things all those years while I was doing it kind of allowed me the uh, the spine to kind of walk away from it. And it was tough because I, you know, I was making a lot of money and it was it was good, but it wasn't rewarding for me. And it was also after this, after my first kid was born, getting home at three in the morning and then waking up for a diaper change an hour later or whatever was needed. It was it was rough and it was hard on me and it was hard on, on everybody. So, I, you know, I, I think everything kind of, uh, like I said, every, everything worked out the way it was supposed to, if just maybe a little slower than maybe I wanted to. Like I said, I'm thankful for where I am now. So I'm where I need to be right now. And that's fine. All right. So you start off a magic at seven, you're learning these tricks, you're going through high school and college. What are some of the stage names that did not stick? The amazing Mike, magic Mike. I mean, is there a lawsuit? Is there is a trademark that you have to, to file here? Oh, one person said to me in college, it's, it's just like followed like a disease ever since. But now I, I've never had a stage name. Um, I've never, I, I should have, because my, my last name has been mispronounced my entire life. I'd probably make it easier if I had just changed it to something else. And actually at one point I was going to change it to my middle, my last name to my middle name, but my middle name is Vincent. So I was like, well, Mike Vincent. And then I found that there's a, a guy in the UK who already has that name. And I was like, ah, damn it. So I was stuck with this burden. But uh, no, I never had like a stage name I went by. And actually, if we're being honest, from when I was a kid all the way through my first night in college, I didn't really advertise to people that I did this. I kind of kept it to myself for various reasons. Uh, one, because, you know, it's, you know, how kids are. Kids can be somewhat cruel, I guess. And I was not the most, let's say, like, I wasn't the most uh, athletic, say athletic person, but I just, I didn't really care about gym class or I didn't give crap. I didn't want to give kids another thing to kind of stick my face in. Like, I was the first kid to go through puberty in, in grammar school. I was the first kid to start shaving. And like, my, my nose has always been the same size. You know, my face just kind of got bigger around it, you know? So I just, I didn't want to have one more thing to feel bad about. And I kind of, I, even at that age, I knew like I love magic too much to let somebody take it away from me. Um, so I really didn't advertise much. And then uh, my first night in college, met this guy who ended up becoming a good friend of mine. And he's like, let's go find a party. So I found a party. And uh, I walked past the room and there's these kids that are playing cards. And I just, I didn't, wasn't even, I didn't even think. I just walked up and grabbed the cards and started doing stuff for them. And, and then like my, my reputation was pretty much made overnight, which is weird. Uh, Cause I went from being really kind of anonymous in high school to a lot of people knowing who I was, which is again, a weird thing for me, but you know, it broke me out of my shell really quickly though. I think that's so, great. That's your question. That... No stage names. <laughs> no stage names, no lawsuits against uh shading tandem. Uh, you know, there's still time though. Uh, <laughs> I think it's great though. You know, being able to break out of your shell. I think I've always been relatively personable. And when you encounter somebody who has a hard time doing that or who is stuck or, or sees how you act around people and they're like, how do you do that? I'm like, I don't even know what you're talking about. I just talk to people, just have yeah, a conversation okay. and, and you see what happens. And 
you know, so it's nice you're able to break out of your shell then. High school, uh, you know, I don't even know why kids go to high school. It just seems terrible. It's, it's just like a, a survival of the fittest through a, a gauntlet. And if you come out of there without any health or mental issues, it, you know, you should get an award for that. Yeah. It's, it was just get for me in high school, it was just getting through it to get through it. You know, like I, I got good grades. I didn't get in a lot of trouble or anything. I just, I, my thing was like, uh, if I got to be here, I'm also do as best I can, but I just didn't want, like my sister, she could go to school the rest of her life and she'll be happy. I could not get out fast enough. And I say, so I'm not like, a, you know, like I got good grades. I just, just didn't want to be there like most kids, you know, but I was never, I was never really like a shy person. I'm always very, I was always very, very personable, but like psychologically it's, it's different things. Like I can walk up to this. I just tell them I can walk up on the street to anybody and, and do magic for them. But if it came down to like, you know, like if I was in a situation where like I had to go and talk, or I just wanted to go and talk to somebody just to talk to them, let's say that's kind of like when the insecurity came in. So sometimes it was like, a, it's like using magic as a crutch. But it, it does help, you know. It, it definitely does. It definitely does take the stress off of it, you know. Because it's nice, and then it's nice too, because it's it's a good non sequitur. If I'm just kind of bored or, or the conversation's not going anywhere, I think that, that's even better. Your conversation's not going anywhere. Like, hey, let me show you a trick. I'm the one driving a conversation with people. You're sitting here now, like, oh man, what's this guy even talking about? But you, you're stuck with people, and they're like, how do I get out of talking about this particular thing? And and there you are stuck, and you can just switch off to something else. I'm like, oh hey, oh, Jack yeah. Hearts. I could listen. I mean, I could do a card trick, or I could continue listening to you about accounting. Hmm. No, no. All right. So, what are you working on now? What's in your world now? What's coming up? Well, I've been trying to kind of get in gear for you know getting a new show together and something more public for people because it's just been people constantly are asking like, yes, but when are you when are you doing this? When are you doing that? Because a lot of the shows I do uh, tend to be private shows, like you know for private clients but i've been working on this thing for a while it's just kind of finding the right the right way to pull it off and then the right place to put it but there's a couple of things coming i really did i wish i had more i'm not even like, trying to be facetious and be like well you have to follow me on whatever to find that out like i really don't know it's just right now it's kind of the way my shows kind of tend to come together is like i just like i mean if you saw like, the other room in my office it's just it's covered in post-it notes and there's just you know different it's like different notes i kind of like kind of rework the notes to kind of like try to map out how i think the show would go and then like i said before there's there's places that i want the show to go I just kind of have to figure out the right way to get in there. Once that's done, that's kind of like when the the final kind of final thing, and then it kind of just happens very quickly. You know, from there, it's just you know finding places to go. Yeah, I mean, there's some stuff I'm, I've been working on that I'm pretty excited about. To try to explain them would be fruitless because they make no sense right now. But it's it's also too is trying to find like the the balance because um, you know trying to find the right the right mix of material that I'm happy doing because sometimes it's like you know I used to, sometimes I would do a show where. It's like one or two pieces that I'm really into, and then the rest is, I say, filler, but stuff that ends up being filler. And thankfully, I have a lot of the stuff that I still do, I'm still pretty happy about. But yeah, I kind of always want to keep it interesting for myself and for people too. You know, once I do have something, I'm, I'm, sure I'll, I'm sure I'll make it very well known. But for right now, it's like if you're running to me on the street, you know, that's where it happens. How do you decide when you want to do a club tour or a club show? Is that East Coast? Are you touring when you do that? Is, is that just the Jersey, New York area versus um, also just factoring in the private shows or whatever you might be doing? Where do you find that balance and how do you decide which one is going to take the driver's seat? The good thing about the private shows is they, they come to me, so I don't have to go out and solicit those, which is nice. Uh, I, I do I do send out things to my mailing list and, and to my clients, but I'm not out there being like, hey, you guys need something this weekend. So the, the, you know, that gives me more time to kind of find places that fit my aesthetic, let's say, because I know the, I know the venues and the, the rooms that I work in and the rooms that I don't. So it, it's kind of has to be that um, I used to tour a lot doing colleges and I just kind of aged out of that, I think. I think I think that was over for me when I went. I went to a, actually I went to the college I, I went to school at. I performed, and uh, someone in the audience didn't know who Kurt Cobain was, and I was like, "All right, like it's this is over." So I, I'm just, I'm, and I was I was still like I was like in my mid thirties, and this, I was like, "That just 
this is done. So um, that's why I kind of try to get more into corporate stuff. But I would love to do a tour tour. But I mean, mostly it's just, you know, stuff locally in you know, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania. It depends. Too. Sometimes there's a, there's a demand for it. And I get a lot of questions from like certain areas. Like I know like in North Jersey, I have a lot of people that want to come. But it's like it's, then it's OK if I do something up there, you got to come. And again, it's good because I'm, I'm good at publicizing, but it's you just you never know. So I just broke the first rule in you know podcast radio type of thing of you said you didn't people didn't know who Kurt Cobain was and the face that I made at that without verbalizing it you know completely just doesn't yeah. connect here with with voice there are about twenty people that everybody should know in music of all different types of music and to not yeah. know Kurt Cobain that that just really seems like it, yeah this, it it really bothered me because especially when she goes uh, she's like well I, I've heard my mom say the name but I don't like I don't know what he does and uh, well, so once I was done crying I, you know I really I, this is a weird thing like this is my obsessive brain I really let this bother me for about a week or two and I was really just thinking about it, like how but how and I thought about it and I was kind of like all right let me think about where I was my first year of college, right? So you go, I mean, think about this yourself. You go to college dorm, like what are the things you see in a college dorm? Like it's stereotypically, you see the lava lamps and you see this and that, but then you see like the Jimi Hendrix poster or you see the the John Belushi poster with the college sweatshirt. And like for people in our age bracket, right? And that being like, you know, mid forties, like I never saw Jimi Hendrix live in person, right? Or I never saw John Belushi Lot, like performing live. I knew him from the movies. I knew Hendrix from, from film strips and things like that. But like, I didn't, that was the context in which I knew those guys. Whereas like someone like Kurt Cobain saw them live, like literally performing 10 feet away from my face at uh, Roseland in New York City back in like 1992. So I, I think that was what, that's what like kind of brought me back down a bit. I was like, all right, well, this person in the audience has no context for Kurt Cobain. So therefore, why should she know? But then going back to your point, yes, there's like 20 or so people that you probably should know. Like, you know, you don't have to know uh, Steve Perry necessarily. Say, I mean, that's a bad example. But uh, you get what I'm saying, though. Like, there's people like you just kind of pass by, but there's, there's certain people you probably should know. But like, it's funny because when I said, I'm like, hey, how many people here know the Foo Fighters? Everybody knew the Foo Fighters. All the hands went up. And I was like, all right, who knows that the singer for the Foo Fighters used to be the drummer for Nirvana? And like, nothing. I was like, all right, we're done. Wow. All right. So, that's tough. I also blame the radio stations yeah. that that they keep switching formats and 1029 uh, is classic rock around here and I'll drive around sometimes it's on and if I hear you know the chili peppers will come on there nirvana will come on there classic rock is a specific year genre and to start putting 90s music into there uh, I think that kind of that ruins it and where you know there should be you know an alternative station in general, where, uh, you know, we're really going to the weeds here. But 104.5 is an alternative station, but that'll play everything up to modern music now, all the way back to, you know, the early 90s. And like, that's just too wide of a gap. Like you need modern, you need to break this up, people. There's plenty of stations, there's plenty of band waves. Help these kids out know who Kirk Urbain is. Yeah. That's I, my uh, PSA. <laughs> I, you know, it's really funny because, you know, growing up for me, uh, the, the classic rock station up in North Jersey, where I was, uh, for the longest time was always, uh, it was K-Rock and then it was WNEW. And, uh, you know, classic rock was the Rolling Stones or it was the Eagles or Led Zeppelin. And I remember this day so well. I was driving up in uh, in Old Japan, New Jersey. I remember exactly where I was. I was, about to make a, I was about to make a right turn at this light by a gas station where my friend lived. And, and I was happening to be flipping through channels. And I came to the classic rock station. And this is like 1998, maybe. And boom. And Guns N' Roses came on. And I was like, Guns N' Roses on classic rock. Like, that's it. We've we've again we've turned we've turned a corner, you know. And now it's like classic rock is early Pearl Jam. I was like, no, no, no. It's been it's just too soon. 
it's just too soon. Makes me feel really old. In my head, I'm yeah. nowhere. The mirror in my head don't match up when, when I look at it. No, nah, yeah. I still see a 17-year-old Mike in the mirror. Good thing is my sense of humor still has that 17-year-oldness. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. I'm surprised I haven't gotten punched more, to be honest with you. I haven't, I haven't wised <laughs> up at all. Is that because of the mind reading? You can know you're going to get punched and you can step out of the way. Is this some matrix skill that you have? You can do the Keanu Reeves of dodging bullets. This is your, you know what line to cross. And uh, like, oh, I'm about to get punched right now. I can step out of the way. Yeah, no. A fast feet. No, I don't know. Maybe maybe I shouldn't be able to see a punch coming. Maybe just let the surprise kind of take me over. I shouldn't say that. that people are like, hey, come here a second. Out. That's how Houdini died, died, right? I mean, this is... Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's, let's touch. He got punched in the stomach, right? Reading his mail. Poor guy. He probably got a telegram, you know, telling him that his car warranty needed to get extended or something in 1910. Want to talk about what? Click. Yeah. No. Do you know that story where he, he you know, he used to get punched in the stomach. He used to like tighten up his uh his stomach muscles and uh, during the show to show, and he'd be like, you have two guys that are hitting him with boat oars, and then uh, it would be, he'd say, take a punch from anybody, so he'd take punches because he would tighten up his stomach muscles where it would feel the impact. So he was in Canada, and someone knocked on his dresser, adjusting the door, and he opened it this frat kid like sucker punched him and he wasn't ready for it and that's what and he, they they said that they were pretty sure that he already had appendicitis at the time but when he got hit that's what made it rupture plus the history lesson that's a tough way to go that is a rough one especially like in 1929 1920 whatever that was because you know you can't get to put leeches on that and Hope for the best. Be fine. Just a flesh wound. Yeah, right. All right. Let's just touch on mind reading real quick. Sure. So I, I was at an event you were performing at and I watched you unlock people's cell phones and you would take their cell phone and hold it up and you're staring at where you're punching in the number, but you're staring at the person who owns the cell phone. And this person whose phone you unlocked, as you were saying, the six digits out loud, was just getting more and more frustrated that you were getting this right, was getting to the point, could not understand how this is even possible to when you did unlock it. it like There was no joy. There wasn't, this was the opposite of come on down, Bob Barker, you're spinning the wheel. This was complete opposite, very uh, aggressive of, of, oh, how, how did you even do this? What types of reactions do you get by, you know, the, the mind reading performing at events? Um, again, it's, it's a good mixture. Right? That one piece in particular, it's good because it's visual. So everyone sees it happen at the same time. So you get like a, like a whole, if you got a crowd around you, you got a whole kind of wave of different emotions happening and it spreads out. It's well, then like, you know, we're, you know, and then do it one-on-one, -on -one, but when you have people around there, everyone kind of reacts, you know, so it's even like if one person's not overreacting, they'll be made to react by the person next to them, which is nice. I found it's a very visceral thing. So it's a very personal universe, you know? And so to kind of invade that to people, um, Sometimes you get people's attention with a, with you know something beautiful, and sometimes you have to harden the expression, but you have to punch them in the face with a finger stick. Now. That and that's kind of like the realm that I like to work in is like do something that's completely not completely explainable, um, but something that's less cerebral than that, and then move into something like that, or be able to tell them the name of somebody that they're thinking of, or a serial number on a bill they just pulled out of their wallet. You know, that that's kind of like the the universe. I kind of like to inhabit more. Because again, you're you're taking something that's just people take for granted every day because they start you know talking the passcode in, but, you know. But then when, you know it's just that it's that nervous thing. It's like that's it's a, it's a whole different. It, it sometimes it's hard for me to explain it, you know, like because it's, it's just that visceral to me. But I get all sorts of reactions. I've got people screaming, crying, cursing. Everyone's always got a joke, you know, about like women wanting to you know, hey, I'll give you a hundred bucks to give me my husband's passcode and you know things like that. People enjoy it, you know, it's fine. And I you know I like doing this, especially with I love doing things with borrowed objects because. Like, 
I said before, there's there's no way to fake that. You know, like here, give me your cell phone or give me your ring or you know that that to me is much more powerful than anything I could you know bring with me necessarily. It was definitely a cool trick to see done in person. It was really funny, you know, knowing the person who had the bad reaction and you know that they're such a nice person and, and just not able to comprehend how somebody could hack their phone, you know, get into it without their permission. Yeah, I try to not like expose the numbers I'm hitting to the people too you know too soon because I don't want them reacting too soon. You know, I mean, if I start punching stuff in, if I if I put the first one in and I put the second one and they see me doing it, then it destroys it because now they know that there's obviously that's the way it's going to go. So I try to kind of always do it so they can't see the screen and I'll have somebody standing next to me and like I said, like you know, keep me honest and I'll just start and and I'll and they can see me type the numbers in. Um, and sometimes you get people who know that person's password, so they'll start doing that saying words like oh, and then I got to kind of move because I don't want them to, to spoil it because then when I turn it to them and I say think of that last digit and then I hit the last digit and it opens, that's when like the, the proverbial you know, poop hits the fan. You know, you got to kind of gauge those things and kind of like I don't want to say um, contrive the ending of it, but you don't want the ending to come too soon because then again, then the whole experience is ruined for everybody. You know, it's just that mystery of is he typing in the right numbers versus, oh, he's typing in the right. She's already confirmed he's typing in the right numbers. So even something simple like that, there's like a theatricality to it. The build up of suspense and then the final payoff, it, it really is just priceless when you yeah. see a reaction like that. Yeah. And then I'll, I'll do two where I'll give them my phone and I'll be like, or I'll, you know, you think of my numbers and they'll start typing numbers and they unlock my phone. And that's, again, that's one of those things that it's, it's just as powerful because, again, they're just like, how in the hell did I do that? And that to me is, again, that's the gift of what I do is giving that ability to somebody to be able to do something that they didn't even know what they could do. You know, like if I give someone a quarter and they squeeze it in their hand and it bends in their hand, like there's no explanation for that. It's their quarter and they signed it and they grabbed it in their hands are squeezing it and I didn't touch it and all of a sudden I spent an ass. And that to me is, is worth its weight in gold. That's amazing. That's so cool. All right, Mike, appreciate your time. Thank sure. you so much for spending the last hour with me. Where can people find you? Uh, Instagram at Mike Paldino. It's P-A-L-D-I-N-O. And the website is MikePaldino.com. Uh, there's a newsletter on there. There's no spam or anything. It's just for show announcements and news and things like that. You can go there. And if you search me on YouTube, there's a few older videos, nothing really recent, but that's something that we're looking... That's what's coming up soon. We're looking to rectify the out-of-date videos on my YouTube channel. Uh, I just have to get off my ass and get it done. I think yeah, that'd so be great. New. Really try to yeah. turn YouTube into a, a streaming platform that, that works for you and, and get your, your tricks out and get people interested and move over to the Instagram and start booking you. Yeah. Getting back to that MySpace thing too. Really, that's an, <laughs> an untapped resource for me lately. Tom never right, did bro. us wrong and we turned our back on him. I, I tell you, that, that man has been looking over his shoulder at me and, and smirking since 2008. It's like, what did you, what, why'd you leave me? And I'm like, oh, damn it. He's so right. It was so simple. But then we remember they started like pulling in all day, like you play all the music and stuff. And it was just like, well, I was just going downhill now too. So <laughs> it's all falling apart. Nothing gold can stay, my friends. No, it all, it all crumbles. All right, everybody yeah. go find Mike on Instagram. Go follow his YouTube channel. Let him know that you found him on Wild and Weird. Mike, really appreciate your time. Come back anytime you want to talk about anything. Our conversation was all over the place. I had a great time. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Talk to you soon. All right, everyone, that was our show. Don't forget to leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcast. Like and follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram to stay up to date in all things wild and weird. Check out the links in the show notes for more information on our guests. The biggest support you can offer is to tell everyone about the podcast. Until next time.